So it's my privilege to uh, share with you today about marriage, something uh, I have experienced for the last 53 years with the same woman, and so happy to share uh, about uh, these experiences with you uh, from this scripture. Uh, we're going to actually start with reading our scripture today from Ephesians chapter 5, and if we can, we're going to talk about Christ-honoring relationships, just to give a disclaimer up front. We're going to talk about marriage, but the principles we're going to talk about apply to all relationships. So if you're not, if you're single today, and you're here and you're single, please understand that this will have meaning for you as well in your life. So I'm going to read from this scripture that tells us that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you, as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church his body, of which he is a savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Okay, that's it, I'm done, good. Uh, just kidding. Now I heard this morning, I think Pastor Ben said, these jokes, Ron, are, are a vestige of patriarchy. And I'm saying, well, I am still a work in progress here on that. Uh, actually, uh, people have asked the secret to our long marriage of 53 years. And I say it's very clear, and some of you have heard this before, but we decided early on that Barb would make all the small decisions and I would make all the major decisions. I'm still waiting. I'm pretty sure before I die there will be a major decision I get to make. I'm just waiting for that time to come. That's a joke. Okay. And uh, I heard of a comedian the other day who said he came to the United States and he was very impressed to see how men are the head of the families in the United States. And then after he observed for a while, he began to watch, and he said, and then I saw that the wives were the neck, and they could turn the head any way they wanted. <laughs> well, those jokes are the vestiges of patriarchy. And you know why they're funny, why they're jokes, is because the way that we have approached marriage for females and the way we have approached the role of women in society and our history as a nation has been abusive and suppressive of women and in response to a lot of those things, jokes have arisen. I remember very well, uh, as a child growing up, my father was a pastor in my early years, and how he would talk about how the men would make decisions at the elders' meetings, but how the women would they'd go home and talk to their wives, and he called it pillow talk, and then the elders would come back and they would reverse their positions. <laughs> and I learned, well, you know what's happening there is when you deny a whole part of your population of a church community a voice, when you deny women their opportunity to fully use their gifts and to be a part of the decision-making apparatus of the, of the church body, you're going to have difficulties and you're going to have trouble. And so I come to you today as one who believes that the church has been on a journey of emancipating women in its, in its life and ministry, and I'm proud to be a part of a church at Mosaic that values having women in leadership, that has a female pastor, that has females on the elder team. It's something I fought for in my church ministry in Lawrence for many years. So just up front, you need to know I'm coming from this understanding that the gospel of Jesus Christ was life-changing, it was society-changing, it was role-changing. And that as we're looking at scripture, we are in a period of transition in the, the the first century world, a period of change. And Paul is speaking in context of a patriarchal society where men are dominating and where women 
are really treated as property and have no legal rights and have no voice whatsoever. And he's talking about how to live as Christians in the context of that culture. But then we are translating this teaching into a, our culture today, and things are indeed different today. So I want to uh, finish the text, actually, if we can go back to the rest of the text. Uh, Henry, I'd appreciate it. Uh, going on, that husbands, you know, here's the other side of the story, by the way, that we're going to look at today and get a full picture of what Paul actually taught, which is much different than society thinks. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then the final part of the text, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I want to talk just a little bit more in introduction about how this has been treated in our culture. This text on marriage, I think, has been used to justify an abusive uh, use of authority. When I, in the 1970s, as a young pastor, we went to a program called the Institute of Basic Youth Conflicts. Does anybody here ever hear of that? I really am old, man. Okay. <laughs> Uh, actually, the guy who did that, Bill Gothard, is still around, and he's recently been in the news, several women in his business accusing him of sexual harassment, which is ironic given the teaching that he gave. But I remember chafing at his teaching in the 1970s that this text meant that if a wife was married to a man who beat her physically, that she was supposed to thank God for the privilege of being beat and just continue to stay in that relationship as an opportunity for her spiritual growth and holiness. I disagree with that. I disagreed with it in the 1970s, and I certainly disagree with it in 2023. There have been many other examples. And the other side of things, Maribel Morgan wrote a book called Total Womanhood. Anybody read that one or hear of that one? I really am old. Uh, this book... Uh, was written by a woman who basically was saying that a woman's total existence is to please her husband in every possible way. The men liked it because she talked about some sexual things that uh, she thought every wife should do for her husband. But she basically was denying her, her giftedness and her pers personhood of all women, saying this is the only reason a woman exists, and that's to please her husband. A very abusive uh, teaching that's taken place. That kind of thing has gone on throughout Christian society, and it still is a huge struggle. If you haven't been watching the news lately, you know that the Southern Baptist Association has had major conflicts over whether women can be considered pastors, even to the point of being a youth pastor or a children's pastor is not being accepted right now in that church movement, and it's caused a lot of controversy and a lot of division. Rick Warren's large church has been removed from the Southern Baptist Association because they consider women to have pastoral roles. So it's a difficult issue that we're facing, and I'm not going to say that it's not. 
The other thing that I struggled with, and the next slide will show, is my own experience of how it was taught about men and women and their personalities. Now, I agree men and women are very different, biologically, obviously, and there are certain things about uh, my maleness. I hate shopping. I'm, a, I'm a, the, the hunter concept that's often talked about. If I need a shirt, I go buy the shirt. Uh, Barb wanted some crutches. I'll talk a little bit more about that lately. And I didn't shop around. I went to Walgreens and I bought the first crutches I saw. That's how I do. You know, if you need it, you go get it. And I'm not going to spend a day trying to save four or five dollars. Sorry, that's how I'm wired. Uh, my wife and my granddaughters and daughters-in-law, they love to shop. I mean, there, does, there is acculturated differences between male and female behaviors, for sure. But when I uh, learned this teaching, and Barbara and I did a lot of work on personality development in our marriage and in our teaching, I provided this Myers-Briggs personality indicator test to over 400 couples that I performed wedding ceremonies for in my years of ministry. And it just spoke some truth to me. And basically, there are four axioms on this. Uh, you're either going to, on a continuum, you're somewhere as an extreme extrovert to an extreme introvert. In my marriage, by the way, I'm an extreme extrovert, and Barb was an extreme introvert. And that is how you get your energy. The extrovert gets energy from the outside, from relationships and activities and experiences. The introvert goes inside for energy. They need that time alone to think and refuel and energize themselves. And we're definitely, Barbara and I, are very different on that, and you can relate to this in your own relationships. The second area is how you gather information. The sensing person gathers through the five senses of what you can see, hear, touch, smell, and taste. And, and it's the fact-oriented. It's the person, it's the mechanic who can look at something and fix it. Uh, the intuitive person is that creative person. It's the architect, it's the dancer, it's the musician who sees beyond what's just on a piece of paper or beyond the, the five senses gather. It's that sixth sense of intuition, creative ability. I, by the way, am kind of on the middle, but I'm sensing by nature and learn to be intuitive. My wife is a very strong intuitive. She still is continually changing things. I mean, she's 75 years old, and everything that she's done in life has changed several times, the way that she does them, always looking for the better way to do them. Uh, it's just the way she is, and I have learned to be patient with that, pretty much. And then the next one is how decisions are made, and you're either a thinker or a feeler. Thinkers make decisions by cognitive principle, what's right and wrong, what's best, what seems to be the, the biblical principle or the truth principle or the cultural truth that needs to be uh, followed, what's the moral principle. The, the uh, feeling person also makes good decisions, but they make them based on relationship. How would this decision impact others? Maybe this is the right thing to do, but sometimes you can do the right thing wrongly and hurt people in the process. So then the feeling person is very in tune to that. At their extremes, the thinking person can be a, a person who's very hard, uh, very, very insensitive. And the feeling person can be so wrapped up and worrying about what everybody thinks they can't make a decision. <laughs> Hopefully we balance somewhere in the middle on those things. By the way, I am a feeler and my wife is a thinker and fairly extreme on the continuum. On the judging, perceiving, judging is a bad word. I think it should have been uh, it's decisiveness. Judging is the, is the person who likes to get things settled. So when we would plan vacations, Barb, who is a J, she wants to plan months ahead. Where are we going to be every day? Where are we going to stay? 
I'm a perceiver and I like to go with the flow. I like to keep my options open to the very last minute because something better might come along. So my idea is you get in the car and head out and you find a place to stay somewhere. And we've had to work those differences together. The reason I bring this up is that in all of these continuums except one, male and females are evenly distributed. But on the thinking feeling, you'll see I put up, 60% of males are thinkers and 40% are feelers. So when I have heard in church teaching over and over again that men are the ones who can make the best decisions because that's how God has wired them, and women are the ones who can provide the emotional nurture of the environment because that's how God has wired them, I'm kind of saying, whoa, wait a minute here. <laughs> I happen to be more nurturing. I'm, I'm the one in my marriage who has the nurturing tendencies more than my wife sure as a mother who loved her children and nurtured them from childbirth she's very nurturing but by our wiring i by nature am more nurturing than she is in most relationships and she is frankly a much better decision maker than i am i get all caught up as an extroverted feeler and how people are going to react to my decisions she goes right to the chase when as counselor she was great if you wanted a paid empathizer, Barb was the wrong person. But if you wanted to get answers and you wanted to figure out what was wrong and you wanted to figure out how to improve and fix your problems, she was the right person because she went right to the truth of the matter. I got more caught up in the feelings of, of people. So understand what I'm trying to say here is that we need to be careful how we approach a scripture and just hear it without full context. But now... Now the important part is to understand the biblical context, which will bring even more truth to us. I wanted to share that the English term hierarchy is derived from two Greek words, hieros, sacred, and uh, arcane, which means rule or order. So hierarchy is really sacred order, and God has set up the world to have order and structure to it. And modern social science, as I looked online and did a little research on hierarchy, learned that there's really kind of two understandings of how social organizations can structure themselves. Traditionally, it's a ranking of authority associated with top-down, uh, rule-oriented command and control. Military. We've got military people in our church. This is how the military functions. But contemporary concepts, particularly in the last century, have emphasized an assignment of roles and duties to divide and conquer tasks in a voluntaristic team-oriented understanding of authority by mutual consent with authority granted upwards. I'm a part of the Orphan Helper Ministry Organization. We have an executive director. He does not lord it over me. He's not top-down. Uh, I grant him. I don't want the role <laughs> of decision-making he has. I, I'm thrilled that he is the executive director that has to make those decisions. I have my role and my function, but we work as a team. We work collegially. We work together in harmony and unity. And the authority is by choice, by volunteering, voluntarily assigning roles and tasks and working together closely. It is not an authoritarian structure or one person lording it over another, as we sometimes think about these things. And I would just ask you, which one best fits um, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ? But I want to talk now about, about the scripture more. Ephesians 5, the full chapter, just quickly looking at some of the verses preceding this teaching on, on women 
and husbands, on wives and husbands. The, the author, Paul, is outlining ways for the church uh, comprised of Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female. Now, it mentions male and female in Galatians in a similar passage. He doesn't specifically say that in Ephesians, but he talks about the body of Christ is one church, one people, that there's neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. That's the goal, to live in this unity and harmony where everybody has equality of value, even though their roles may be different. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we read these words, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then 5, 8, B, and 9, live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And we drop down to verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So in these verses, Paul is saying, Walk in the way of love, live in the light of Christ, and be wise in how you make decisions, how you live your life. And then in verses 18 to 21, the last verses prior to the teaching on husbands and wives, he says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And then he gives four expressions of what it means to live in the Spirit. To speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which we can kind of consider to be fellowship. To sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, worship. To always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, gratitude. To submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, relationship. In the, some versions, it's because it's a present participle in the Greek, it's actually speaking, singing, giving thanks, and submitting. All of those are, are in the same sentence expressing what it means to be filled with the Spirit. If you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to worship, you're going to be grateful, and you're going to submit to others out of reverence for Christ. That's part of the Christian body's style of life together that Paul is talking about. But I'm going to suggest to you in the next slide that that verse 21 is a very important transition verse. Remember in the original writings of the of the scriptures, there were not paragraphs. And so different versions have struggled with this. Some, I forget which version, more recently has verse 21 as a separate paragraph because it is a transition verse following Paul's thoughts about unity and, and holiness in the body of Christ and what it means to live in the light and the love of Christ. But it also leads into his next section where he's going to give three applications of of what it means to submit to one another. He's going to talk about it in marriage and in parenting and in first century slavery. Whoever's speaking next week gets to talk about parenting and first century slavery and to unpack all of that for you. But today my focus is on the marriage part. On the one hand, Paul upholds the sacred order of an authority structure. I mean, the scriptures are pretty blatant in a sense, pretty black and white in marriage. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord and obey them in everything. In parenting, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. In slavery, slaves, obey your masters with respect and fear and sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. Let me quickly just point out 
we would not justify slavery based on this text. It was the reality in which Paul was writing. And this was indentured slavery. I don't want to steal the next sermon, but this was a choice to indenture yourself to a master to earn uh, your freedom at a certain point in the future. It still was authoritarian structure and the slaves had no personal freedoms and rights. So it was not a healthy way of life. And we would not, by scripture, use this to validate or say that slavery is good. This was Paul working in the context of the culture he was in, how to live a Christ-glorifying life. And I'm going to say the same thing about marriage. That's how marriage was. And we're going to see that a little bit more in the first century. So, on the other hand, in the next slide, Paul turns this traditional understanding of authority structure upside down. In marriage, he says, husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Parents, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Be sensitive to them, in other words. Don't be an authoritarian father who just lays down the law without understanding the feelings and the needs and the emotional needs of your child. You don't exasperate your children. Slavery, masters, and again, there were masters and slaves, so he's dealing with that. Treat your slaves in the same way wholeheartedly as if serving the Lord. Do not threaten them since you, you know that he is who is their, that you know, excuse me, you know him that is your master and he is yours in heaven. I cannot read my own writing. Since you know that he who is their master and yours is in heaven. Now, Paul, that, he could have written a better sentence there, I'm frankly. <laughs> and there's no favoritism with him. <laughs> so what he's saying is that you know God, and God has no favoritism, and so you shouldn't either. So slaves and masters treat each other just like you're equals. So what Paul is doing here is he's upending the hierarchical, power-down, top-down, authoritarian model in marriage, in parenting and in slavery. He's saying, in the body of Christ, you're one. You're, you're together. You are one flesh in marriage, just as Christ in the body of Christ is one flesh. You un he's, he's doing away with authoritarianism and abusive power control in this, in this discussion. In our next slide, we look at uh, some more about uh, healthy, I want to talk about healthy marriage concepts, and I'm going to throw out just three or four things that I think are pretty important from this text uh, as it has uh, guided my life. First of all, servant leadership is the style of leadership throughout the New Testament. Here's just a couple examples. Uh, in Matthew 20, verses 26 to 28, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Here's that top-down style. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must first be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Servant leadership. Not top-down, but lifting people up, walking alongside them equally. And in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also was shared in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Not because you must, but because you are willing. 
as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Elders are servants of the flock, empowering, lifting up, encouraging, walking alongside, not lording it over. And then selflessness is the second marriage principle I want to talk about. Living for the good of the other as Christ did for us. In biblical times, women were not loved and respected. In Jewish society, saw women as property. Men would pray, thank you, God, that you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was an actual first century prayers that took place by Jewish men. A woman had no legal rights and was always subject to her husband's wishes. I love in uh, the uh, Chosen how it is portraying Christ and bringing women into his band of disciples and treating them equally and how he begins to lift women up. In the New Testament church, we begin to see that women begin to serve as leaders, as deacons, uh, I believe as an elder in the church, uh, Romans 16 passage, that God began to change this old order of patriarchy and began to bring men and women together. In Christ, there is not male nor female, but one body together. And so... This idea of selflessness was a tremendous change from the cultural attitudes of the time. Jewish society saw women as property. Men would, I mentioned that, sorry. It was even worse among Greeks and Romans. They were even worse. The man expected his wife to run his home and raise his legitimate children while he found his pleasure elsewhere. And there was no real companionship. There was almost a complete breakdown of the family in Greek and Roman society. And here comes Paul talking about selflessness. Living for the good of the other. Paul's teaching on the Christ new society maintains the social order, the sacred rule of the leadership of the husband, having a leadership responsibility. And we need strong men. We need strong husbands. We need strong fathers. As we need strong women, we need strong wives, we need strong mothers, the same way. But he totally and completely changes what it means from the prevailing ideas around him. Instead, he teaches that loving the wife as Christ loved the church, the husband will sacrificially give himself to loving his wife so that she may develop her full potential and fulfill God's call in her life. And she will do the same for her husband. So we're in Michigan and in Ohio, and uh, the plan was that Barb is going to stay a week with her sister Mary, who's unfortunately has cancer throughout her body and recently diagnosed with brain tumors. And Barb was looking forward to being with her sister for that week. And honestly, I was looking forward. I was going to drive home. She was going to fly home a week later. I had a whole week to myself. Now, I'm married 53 years, and I'm glad to have my wife, and I want to keep her as long as I can. But once in a while, it's nice to be alone. Any married people that can relate to this. And uh, I was going to work, but I was going to play some golf, and play some golf, and play some golf without my wife saying, are you playing again? I, I didn't have to face that. And then she gets injured. And it became apparent that she, I couldn't leave her there with Mary. I stayed a couple more days so that we could spend some time with her. And then we drove home in what was a horrific ordeal for Barb, 11 hours on Monday. She has, we found out on Friday after urgent care, walk-in clinic, 
chiropractor, massage therapist, and then an MRI that she has fractures in her sacrum, and she is in intense pain. And I'll, I want to be honest, <laughs> at first, when I realized I couldn't go home and do what I wanted for a week in my own pace and style, I wasn't very happy. I was kind of a little bit of a jerk. I didn't say anything to her. I just kind of glommed around, you know. Woe is me. I don't get to do what I want to do for a week. And I was, yeah, I know you have some pain, but I was going to play golf, you know. I was so selfish in my inner self. I hated, I mean, I look back on that and say, oh, man, Goodman, after all these years, you ought to know better than that. And then a choice is made. We were talking about this earlier, Lynn. You make that choice. And I said to Bart, oh, yeah, I think we're something like for better or worse in sickness and in health till death do us part. Then I made that decision. Oh, no, I want to love Barb fully. I remember reading in a book by Stephen Covey on the seven habits, which I was called my second Bible for a while. And it's page 52. I have it underlined at the top. He says, when you're complaining about your spouse, you have the ability to make a choice. You can choose your response. When she's doing something you don't like or something uh, not doing enough of what you want her to do, you can make that choice. How good a husband am I being? Am I loving her as Christ would love her? And that was the decision that God spoke to my heart very quickly. Well, maybe not real quickly. It took a little time. <laughs> but it got there. And it's been a joy this week to serve her, to cook and do the laundry and make it every 15 minutes. Ron, <laughs> I need something. It's been a joy to serve her, and we've been so in love together during this week of trial. That's what Paul's talking about in selflessness. We make that decision in marriage to love our wives as Christ loved the church and wives to love our husbands in the same way. And then, I know time is gone, so mutual love and respect is another principle that I believe in. Paul talked about being one flesh. Mutuality in marriage, that's my theme. I really don't believe that we, ideally, working together, that all decisions can be made jointly and with the desire to enrich the lives of one another, working as a team in marriage, working in partnership, knowing our gifts and our strengths. I know what Barb does well. She knows what I do well. Uh, if we need to fix something, we call Barb. That's just the reality uh, in our marriage, which isn't what the culture says it should be. Most men are the fixers. I'm not, in my case. So we learn those values, and we work together in mutuality, and that's mutual love and respect, seeking to see the world through the eyes of the other. And that's a, one we learn through communication, is how to not just have the other person hear my side of things, but to really listen and hear their side of things, to see it through their eyes. And then that brings empathy and compassion and connection, and at least a mutual love and respect. And then finally, just the love as Christ loved us. That's, that's the bottom line. <laughs> if we approach marriage with the love that Christ has for his church, we approach any relationship that we have, important relationships in our lives, and love, seek to love, make that decision to love them, others as Christ loved us, we will be good and God will be glorified. By way of application, the principles of servant leadership and selfless love for the other and mutual Love and respect apply to all relationships in the body of Christ. Scriptures teach us how to treat one another. 
to love, honor, respect, be devoted to, build up, care for, accept, serve, forgive, be patient with, teach, comfort, encourage, exhort, pray for, etc., etc., etc. That's what God's calling us to, to love as he loved us. So I would just ask you in closing, is there someone today that maybe the Lord would have you reach out to? Maybe it's in your marriage. You need to just renew your vows, renew your commitment to loving your spouse as Christ loves you. Maybe there's someone you need to forgive or to seek forgiveness from. Maybe there's a broken relationship that needs some mending and some caring. What would Christ have you do to be an agent of his love and his compassion, to be his ambassador a healer in this culture. Or maybe it's just a commitment to loving better as Christ loves you. As we come to a time of communion, I'll first lead in the Lord's Prayer and then turn it over to, to Josh. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one.